As a church, we're in a brand new series, and uh, we just started it a couple weeks ago. It is called Fear Not, Knowing Peace in an Age of Anxiety. And we recognize that for many people in this room, many people in our city, uh, walking various challenges around anxiety is something that, 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 that many in this room and in our city do. It's something that's familiar to many of us. And we wanted as a church to take quite a few weeks and, and drill down into this and really look at the Bible, really look to see what the Bible has to say about this topic. And one of the things that we realized right away is actually the most repeated command in scripture throughout this book is fear not. It's something that God is saying a lot to his people because God knows us. He knows that we can be a fearful people. I say that to you this morning if you're here and you have a relationship with Jesus. I also say it to you this morning if you're here and you're just checking this out for the first time. Still, we all have fears. This is something that's relevant to each of us in one way or another. Now, something we want to do as much as we can throughout this series is just have some stories from people in the church of what things have been like for them as they have been walking this out. This morning, the focus that we're going to be taking is, is, in our Fear Not series is looking at pain and the past and how events of the past can create anxieties in us that make us essentially assume that we know what the future is going to hold and and within that think very negatively about it kind of bracing ourselves for the worst because of something that has happened in the past again i suspect across this room various people can relate to this in different ways but i've asked a very dear friend of ours her name is jasmine my wife natalia and i actually met her first uh, over in the uk when she was doing supply teaching there and then she is uh, from the ottawa area herself so when we moved here to start the church in the city she was moving around the same time so she's been a tremendous gift to our family and to our church and i've invited her to come up and to share this morning a little bit about her journey in this herself Go for it, Jasmine. Thank you for doing this. Uh, yes, so I'm sure that a lot of you may have seen me behind the coffee counter. Uh, not here today, obviously, but over at the Shaw Center. Um, and then my walk with anxiety has been lifelong. Uh, from when I was very young, uh, my parents divorced, my mother remarried, and my stepfather was abusive. Uh, so I spent a lot of my life afraid and and nervous and trying to take care of my younger siblings, making sure everything was just so, so that the least amount of pain possible. Um, and I definitely have carried that into my future uh, with low self-esteem and thinking, you know, I'm not enough and everything has to be just so. Um, and then when I was in the UK, we had a preach on shame and I was very much affected by it. Uh, my life group leaders there found me a Christian counselor to help me through it. And we talked a lot about how my identity is not based on the hurtful things that I had internalized as a child. That, you know, who I am is not about how hard I work or how perfect I can make my surroundings. That it is about how God loves me. That I am loved and that I am safe and saved in him and that I am worth saving. Um, and when I came back to the UK, I was uh, diagnosed with OCD and depression and ended up taking medication. And it's been an up and down battle. Some days are better than others. Um, and I sometimes just pray, God, help me to believe, give me the belief that I am loved and that I am 
enough and that my identity is not my OCD or my pain, that my identity is in Christ and that yeah. I am a unconditionally loved daughter in Christ, even though my brain sometimes shoots, you know, <laughs> uh, negative thoughts at me, that that's not who I am. So, yeah. Well done, Jasmine. Thank you. Can we thank Jasmine? Well done. As I know, I said it last week as well, I know some of you have just kind of come in the room and already you're hearing a very, very personal, very vulnerable story. Part of the intention behind this is just to show you that as a church, we, we want to walk this together. Uh, we want to uh, not kind of put on any kind of false facade and, and, and just kind of present kind of a version of ourselves we want to convince others about. We just want to be genuine. We want to be authentic uh, that way. I say that as somebody who doesn't do that perfectly myself. Believe me, I, I get it better than most, the, the, the temptation to present a version of myself that I think you will like more than the version that is actually true. But as a church, we need to fight that. We, we, we need to be genuine with each other. We need to uh, strive to, to have grace for each other, to love each other, knowing that there are stories like this all around the room, all right? So with that said, we're going to look at this morning at First Timothy Chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. This is going to be the main text that we're drawing from this morning. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to pray. And we're going to look into a few things together this morning. This is what it has to say. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you uh, welcome us as we are. You don't look at this room or to anybody in our city and say, no, you, you, you can't call out to me. You're not allowed to do that. You're too filthy. You're too, you're too far. But God, thank you that your love for us is so great that when we do cry out to you, you don't leave us as we are. We become covered by the righteousness of Christ. We're not just, when we receive Christ by faith, thank you, God, that we're not, we're not just transformed into, into slightly better versions of what we used to be. The old version of us is actually dead. And we gain new life in Christ. We find our life in him. God, what a great gospel, God. Thank you, God. Thank you for this good news. Thank you that it depends on Jesus Christ, that it doesn't depend on our performance, that as Jasmine was saying, it doesn't depend on what has or has not been done to us in the past. It depends entirely on Jesus, on who he is, and on what he has done. And Holy Spirit, I pray this morning as I preach that that is what would come through loud and clear. Even if I'm tripping on my words, even if I'm saying other things, Holy Spirit, just do something so that we know the gospel this morning, so that we know the good news of Jesus Christ this morning, and that each of us look to him, 
this morning as our hope, as our peace, even in the midst of anxiety. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's start with a, a fairly simple question this morning. The question is this. Who are you? Who are you? Now, I know that can sound like a big, deep philosophical question. I don't necessarily mean it like that. I suspect if you came in this morning and this is your first Sunday with us, or even if it's not your first Sunday and you're just kind of going up to somebody that you maybe haven't met before, you probably start by saying your name. That's what we do. We, we say, hi, my name's Rich. Who are you? And how's it going? And that sort of thing. I wonder how many of us, though, have actually stopped to think about what our names actually mean. My wife and I, we have two children. We're expecting a third in February, so we're having lots of name conversations right now. So this is very much on our minds. What, what, what names do we feel drawn to, and what do they mean? But I know for me, I'm 36 years old, I can think of like maybe one or two times where somebody has said to me, you know what your name actually means? And they kind of give me a, a version of something that they found, but I've not really looked into it in any real detail myself. So what I thought we would do this morning, uh, to start off a little bit, I'm going to pick on a few people that you've already seen um, up here at the front or who are serving in the church. And we're going to look at what some names mean. All right. We're going to start with Emily because she's, she's leaving for Calgary. So we're going to start with Emily here. All right. So Emily, I don't know if you knew this, Emily. Emily is an English feminine form of the Roman family name Amelius, which means rival. How cool is that? <laughs> in this English-speaking world, it was not common until after the German House of Hanover came to the British throne in the 18th century. And it goes on from there. Did you know that? No. All right. This, is, this has been an educational morning for Emily already. Okay. Uh, William. Will. Will's a friend of ours who, uh, if, if you've been with us in previous weeks or even this morning, he's probably helped welcome you to church this morning. So uh, William, from the Germanic name Wilhelm, which was composed of the elements will, desire, and helm for helmet and protection. Pretty cool, right? Those of you that know Will, maybe think of him in that way. All right, Jasmine, who is just up here, from the English word for the climbing plant with fragrant, 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 am I saying that right? My goodness. Flowers, with nice smelling flowers, which is used to make perfumes. It is derived from Persian, uh, whatever that word is, which is Yasmin, which is also a Persian name. There you go. That's nice. My wife's name, Natalia, from the late Latin name, Natalia, which meant Christmas Day, which I absolutely love because one of my wife's favorite movies is Elf and Will Ferrell, like having Christmas Day every day. My wife is basically a female Will Ferrell and Elf, and that's what I draw from that. And then finally, uh, for me, uh, Richard, I tend to go by Rich, originally from the German, Ricard, uh, <laughs> which does not mean to reek, okay? Uh, from Ricard meaning brave power, and I've added except on watching Stranger Things. So there you go. A little bit about some names. I wonder how many of you have actually looked into what your names mean, because in our culture, we tend not to give a huge amount of thought to what our names mean. And here's why. When it comes to thinking about ourselves... What we tend to base all of our thoughts on about ourselves tends to be based more on our experience, tends to be based more on our past. And in many cases, the way that we think of ourselves tends to be based on our pain, on challenging things that we have walked or that we are walking. We see ourselves through the lens of our own experiences, our own successes and failures, our own hurts, our own pains, as I was saying, even our own joys and celebrations. And, and in our culture, so often, it's the sum of all of these things that contribute to how we think of ourselves, not simply as a name. Now, as I was saying, the way that we present ourselves is very different, though, isn't it? 
And it's very different in our culture, certainly very different in our city here. We speak a lot about Ottawa as a city that is very driven, a city that really prizes title and accomplishment. We have the highest average education in the country in Ottawa. We have, believe it or not, the highest average income in Ottawa in the country. We are a city of qualification, of title, and of achievement. And in a city like that, it can be seen as a dangerous thing to present who we actually are. Because if we present who we actually are, we have to admit some weaknesses. We have to admit some shortcomings. And we can think in our town here that if we do that, that other people are just going to step on us or move around us. So we often resort, and friends, I understand this, we often resort to presenting a version of ourselves, even certainly on first introductions. When I was living in the UK, I got really confused when I was over there because when I first moved there, people kept asking me, they, they, kept, they kept saying, uh, all right, all right, mate. I was like, all right, what do you mean? And, and the, the longer version of the question was, are you okay? You okay? You okay? Sometimes just one word, okay? <laughs> That's what it was. That was the question that I would be asked. And when I was there, I was really confused because if people walked up to me and said, you okay? I'd be like, why? What did you hear? Like, does, does something supposedly happen to me this week? Like, I don't really know. And I came to understand that you okay or okay, mate, or, or just all right, or whatever the abbreviation of it would be, I came to realize that it's the same in, in our context here as, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? That, that's what we would ask. How's it going? Now, when I moved back to Canada, this was three years ago, I had had this ingrained in my head for nine or ten years of living in the UK that you don't say, hey, how's it going? You say, all right. <laughs> you okay? Or are you okay? And I remember standing in line at a cafe, and there was somebody near me, and I meant to say to them, hey, how are you doing? But I looked at this poor woman, and I said to her, I said, are you okay? And she just looked at me. And then she went, no, I'm not. I think... I'm going to lose my job. I've had a relationship that has just come to an end. I'm standing in line for this coffee that I actually ordered like 10 minutes ago. And I think the barista has totally forgot about it. No offense to baristas in the room. Sometimes it happens. Don't worry. We don't judge you. And she just kind of kept going and going and going on this. And I'm there. I'm about to reach for my phone, right? I just have a call to take. I'm sorry. But then it actually hit me. You know what? There's actually somewhat strange, something strangely refreshing about this. There's something strangely refreshing about saying to someone, whether it was accidental or not, are you okay, and getting an honest answer. Because we just don't do it. Like, we just don't do it. We're so prone to just presenting the way that we want people to think of us. And so much, friends, so much of our anxiety comes from us not being able to keep up with the image of ourselves that we craft. You follow me? We get so kind of caught up in having to create this, this spin, essentially, of how I'm going to be presented. And, and, and maybe for a group, we present ourselves like this, but maybe for a different group in a different context, we present ourselves like that a bit. And sometimes we trip over ourselves. Who, who am I in this setting? What have I said? What have I, what have I done? And we can't sometimes keep up with our own projections of ourselves. It creates stress. It creates anxiety. Why? Why are we like this? Well, again, let's come back to those terms. We're like this because of the past. There are things in our past that can make us feel ashamed, embarrassed, angry, sad. All of these things contribute to how we want to present ourselves. Now, let me get to some of the good news here. We are not alone in this. The Bible is full of stories of men and women who walk this out. In the book of Exodus, many of you will have seen films about Exodus. Uh, many of you will be familiar with this story. God's people are slaves in Egypt. And we read in Exodus that God has not forgotten them, and he is going to break in 
And he sends a messenger. He sends Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. I've had enough of this. I've had enough of them being in slavery. And as you keep reading this story, there are 10 increasing uh, things that are done to Pharaoh and to his nation to sh- for, that God is doing to show that he is serious. He does not want his people to be slaves. He wants his people to be free. And eventually, the freedom does come. Pharaoh says, fine, go, get out of here. And off they go. And as they are going, they're following Moses. They come to a sea. How are we going to cross this sea? What are we going to do? And they're looking in the back, and they know whether they hear or they see it. We're not exactly sure, but they know that their former masters are coming after them. They're out there. They're free people, but they know that those that held them captive are coming after them. Now, you would think, given all of these signs, all of these amazing things that God has done, you would think that they would look at this, and they would go, look at everything that God's done. Look at his faithfulness. Look at how he set us free from being slaves. We're going to be fine. We're going to be absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. Let's just keep going forward in faith. But we'd be wrong to think that. We'd also be wrong to think that we would think that. We think it now because we know the rest of the story. But imagine being in their situation. What is it that they actually say? It's actually something very different. Exodus 14, 11 and 12, they, the people, said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What would you have done to us? What would you have done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Listen to this. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What are they saying? They're saying, Moses, we'd be better off as slaves. We'd be better off as slaves. Friends, sin has this incredible way of making us think that we would actually be better as slaves to to the pain of the past than to being free in God. And not only that, it actually leads us to think that it's more dangerous, it's worse to be in God and close to God and being led by God than it is to be held captive by the things of the past. Have you experienced that in your own life? Where you know, no, God, I, I, I want to I cling to you in this, but before long you find yourself actually clinging to the very thing that you know has held you captive. And you and I often end up thinking this very thing, you know what, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm better off as a slave. I'm better off as a slave. Over years of serving in pastoral care, this is something that I've seen time and time again. I don't say this to minimize it, but the common example that would come up would be a person who's in an abusive relationship. And their friends are telling them, you're you're in an abusive relationship. You need to get out. You need to get away. Most often, tragically, it's a woman who's being abused. You need to get away from that guy. He is bad news. Get away from him. And not in every case, thankfully, but in many cases... The people end up thinking, you know what, better the devil you know. Like, at least, the, at least this is familiar. At least, at least this is something that I'm, that I'm experienced with. This is just the way it is. And yeah, I know there's, there's this bad stuff, but it's, it's not all bad. We can sometimes, I know there'd be many other examples, but we can sometimes think that going to the very thing that is holding us captive is actually better than freedom. Now, there's been a move against this type of thinking over the past few years, and nowhere do we see it more blatantly, believe it or not, than actually in the world of advertising. We see loads of things. A lot of it, again, is aimed towards women that is saying, like, no, you're worth it. 
you're worth it. You, this, this, isn't, this isn't what it needs to be like. You are worth it. And there's a, a, a women's uh, beauty products, cosmetic products company, that this, that's their big slogan. It's because you're worth it. But we need to drill down on this and actually think, well, what, what is actually being said here? I'm not saying this as somebody who's against hair products. Women, I actually think that it's great that you shampoo and condition your hair. Please don't stop, okay? I think that's a good thing. Or makeup or anything. I'm not against this stuff. My point is this. is it Doesn't it seem strange to have a beauty product company saying, because you're worth it. Because you're worth it, you can put this stuff on and actually look a bit different than what you are actually like because you're worth it. Seems peculiar to me. I'm not saying it's wrong to wear that stuff. I'm saying that it's manipulative. It's, it's well, yeah, I, I am worth it. I am worth it. So I should, I, I, I should, I'm worth it. So I should reward myself and buy these products. Is it just enough to be thought of only as worth it? Jasmine mentioned that when she was sharing a bit of her story, but it's not the only thing that she mentioned. Friends, what I want to say to you this morning is that when it comes to dealing with the past, it's not enough to only think that you're worth it. Only, and just to leave it at that, there must be something more. And pray God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, offers us something far greater. The gospel, when it comes to our slavery, the gospel says no. The good news of Jesus Christ says to us the same thing that God says to the Egyptians that are holding God's people captive. It says, let my people go. Do you believe this morning that the God that we worship this morning says over the thing that is holding you captive, that is keeping you from freedom, that is keeping you from peace, that is keeping you from rest, that God, God's heart for you is that same one of let my people go. Now, friends, I acknowledge that there's mystery in this. There's mystery in the timing. If that's his heart for me, that I would know freedom, and we're going to come to that. Clearly, that's God's heart for you. Well, why, why do I not feel free? Friends, we still live in a world that is just ravaged by sin, that is groaning for the return of Christ. You need to know that there's a loving Heavenly Father that greatly desires your freedom. So much that he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, to win it for you. The gospel says, let my people go over the thing that is holding you captive. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, whose words we heard at the beginning of, uh, of the sermon this morning from First Timothy, he speaks about things in his past. And he speaks about fear of the past as well, but he doesn't tell the church in Rome that they should just accept the pain and the fear of the past as the way that it is, or that it's God's plan of suffering for them as if he delights in it, or the way they should just view themselves. He shows them something completely different. He says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I want to contrast these two things. I want to contrast slavery and a cruel master that holds us captive, that holds us down, that says, this is who you are. And I want to contrast that against the gospel with what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8. Our past says, slave, be afraid. God says to us, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, be free. It's not enough just to not have slavery, to not feel captive. The gospel doesn't just stop there. God, through Jesus Christ, adopts us into his family as well. It's not just being set free. It's being set free and being brought in to the family of God as a son or as a daughter. The gospel goes well beyond simply your worth it, which isn't bad. You, you are 
That's Jesus' attitude towards you when he went to the cross. This is worth it. For the sake of my bride, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Of course, he's thinking that, but it's not that alone. It's that these ones who are worth it, they are loved. And I'm doing this. I'm going to the cross so that they will be loved as sons and daughters of God, of immeasurable worth. This allows us to view our past as painful as it may be in the correct light. This isn't, friends, this isn't a call in this church to just glance over pain of the past. I leave the church. I do not want us to be that type of church. I just don't. I don't want us to be a type of church that is just flippant about pain. Well, you just need to have more faith. Well, you know, I'll, I'll pray for you and then you never do. You know, these things that can just kind of get batted around. Let's, no, no. Pain of the past is real. It hurts. And Jesus Christ came and he entered our world. He entered into our pain. It's incarnational. And friends, when we refuse to do that with each other, we're, we're denying something that is so central to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. What a privilege we have that we can enter into the pain of others. My wife Natalia and I have been walking with Jasmine in these things for a number of years. We've been open with her about things that we've been walking as well, other people in this room. What a privilege. And dare I say it, other than in the church of Jesus Christ, where, where else are you going to find it like this? Like this. With such grace, I hope. With such compassion, I hope. With not looking to good advice, with not looking to top ten articles, but with looking to a heavenly father. Where else are you going to find that? If you're experiencing pain right now, even, even coming this morning was hard for you. You're in the right place. And I don't mean exclusively this church but among the people of God who know that Jesus Christ has come and has entered into their pain to rescue them. There may be pain for a time yet, but there's a day coming when all pain will cease, when every tear will be wiped from their eye. In 1 Timothy, Paul, as he's writing this letter to Timothy, he gives us what I think is a very healthy blueprint blueprint for how we should view the pain of the past. He says this in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. He says, Oh, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. That's the past. If you're familiar with Paul's story, he was, he was standing by idly when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was being killed, when he was being stoned to death. Paul, who would become the apostle Paul, is standing by idly watching this happen. He ravaged the church. We read that in Acts. Paul was ravaging the church. Jesus breaks in. What does he say? Why, why are you persecuting my people? No, no, no. He says, why, why are you persecuting me? Attacks on the church, Jesus takes very personally. We see that in what he says to Paul. That's who Paul was. That is his past. You think you might have a shameful past because of things that you've done or things that have been done to you? How do you compare to Paul? And this is a guy who's written many of the books that are in our Bible today. A guy who goes on and he starts many churches. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. That's the past. Where does he go from there though? Does he just dwell on it? Does he just kind of wallow in pity right there endlessly? No, he acknowledges his past. But then... But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in, ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
Then he goes on to say in verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as a foremost, Christ Jesus might display, that's looking to the future now, his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He's saying my past has not been wasted. As tragic as it is, God is using it for his glory. And friends, I want to encourage us this morning to think of our pain and our past in the same way. This isn't a call just to glance over it. This isn't a call to just forget it. This is a call to see it as an opportunity for God to be glorified. Let's not waste it. Michael Emmett, he's a medical doctor. He has an MDiv degree as well. He's part of an American uh, foundation called the, the, the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. This guy knows what he's speaking about. He sums it up like this. He says, the very experiences that threaten to drive you the furthest from God are the exact experiences that bring you into closest possible relationship with your Savior. And what he's saying is this, don't waste your pain. Let it push you towards Jesus, not away from him. In fact, this is a pattern we see repeated throughout Scripture. Men and women who have horrible, shameful past who are then used mightily by God. Now, some of you are here and you might be thinking, well, I don't have that shameful of a past. And I want to urge you right now to please be careful. Because you might be comparing yourself to the person to your left or to your right or to another story you've heard or something else, humanly speaking. But compared to a perfect and holy God, each and every one of us have a shameful past. Each and every one of us has fallen short. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every single one of us. But for those of you who are Christians, who have given your lives to Jesus and have received him by faith, that is not the end of your story. Because Romans 3 does not end at verse 23. He goes on. He starts by saying, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Christians in the room, listen to this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an exchange, as a payment by his blood to be received by faith. Before we worship, I want to say this to everybody in the room. We are all Romans 3.23. Every one of us in this room right now, every one of us is Romans 3.23. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. My question to you this morning, are you Romans 3.24 and 25? Knowing that you are a sinner, have you been justified? What does that mean? Have you been declared righteous? Have you been declared innocent by your works? Because you're a good, you're, you know, you're, you're a good Christian. You do the right things. No. Have you been declared innocent by his grace? Made available to you because you put enough in the offering plate this morning? Because you're on enough serving rolls? Because you told a friend of the pub the other day that you have a relationship with Jesus. Those are great things. It's not possible because of that. His grace is available to you as a gift. Friends, this is such good news. Stop your striving. Stop your, your, your performing. Stop your extending of, of the version of yourself that you just want everybody to come to understand about you. But if my employer knew who I really was, I might lose my job. Yeah, you might. 
But ultimately, your employer is not your provider. Your heavenly father is. But if my spouse knew that thing, my child, my friend in the church, what, what would happen? What would it cost me? Friend, your identity isn't in that. Your identity is secure in Christ. Trust him with it. Trust him with it. When it comes to dealing with the shame and the pain of the past and anxiety caused by the past, what we must cling to is knowing who we are in Christ. Do you know who you are in Christ this morning? If you're a son or daughter of God this morning, but you still think that you're worthless, you still think that you're not loved, you're like, no, no, I've given my life to Jesus. I don't say this to be harsh, my friend. You're actually denying the gospel. You're denying that when Jesus says, it is finished, you're going, no, it's not. It's not. There's still stuff I need to do. There's still stuff I need to sort out in order to be accepted by God. Friend, if you are in Christ this morning, women in the room, listen to me. Anything that has happened to you in your past, anything you've done, but anything that has been done to you in your past, that does not define you. So serious as a church about calling men to stop behaving like boys. I don't mean men in this church. I just mean men. Because I, I was a man child for a long time. And it, it's, it's just ugly. It's horrific. And all too often it comes at the cost of women knowing who they are. Knowing that in Christ they are loved. They are valued beyond any any figure I could imagine up with all the zeros in the world wrapping around like Jesus' love. Daughters of God in this room, his love for you is immeasurable. Sons in this room, no matter what you've done, whether it's related to what I've just said or anything even done to you, I don't take away from that. This isn't exclusive to women. If you're in Christ, you are a beloved son of God by his grace. That is who you are. The final thing I'm going to say this morning is, is that who you are? If you're in Christ, it is who you are. If you're not in Christ, it can be this morning. Let it be this morning. Enter into him this morning. Receive his grace as a free, free gift this morning. Come find me. Come find anybody serving. I'm going to invite the worship band to come back up. We're going to worship Jesus. We have so many reasons to sing praise and worship to him.